Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 13, air date May 16th, 2013. Uh, good to see you. Am I on? Test? Okay. So anyway, thank you. It's, it's uh, great to be here. It's the second time here. Thanks, John. Um, so what I wanted to share with you was actually the details of a report we just put out for um, uh, USPS Office of Inspector General. Uh, Last year, Dave Williams had uh, asked us to do a series of workshops to look at potentially new ways to generate revenue for the Postal Service. So one of the reports we did was actually through the use of email. And this was the second in the series where we actually did a workshop. And we actually looked at an interesting area called international small business e-commerce. So I wanted to define what that is. And then I wanted to share with you some of the uh, results of that report. Obviously, we're not going to go through the details. Uh, If people want a copy, I'll send it to you. So let's go to the next slide. Um, next. Next. So this is actually, go up to the next slide. So if you, if you zoom in on this, this was actually the report we put out. So I want to thank Sonu and also Tom Zawaki. Um, but we called it potential sources of new revenue since we didn't want to hype anything. But it's really potential source of new revenue. I think the Postal Service will have to decide whether it can actually generate revenue. Next. I think there's a clicker here, right? Let me just use this so I don't have to bug you. And... Um, Let me give you how um, Dave and I were talking about this. Back in 93, uh, one of the first businesses I did when I was at MIT was actually to look at how uh, the internet could help artists. I actually have a degree in art and design. A lot of my friends were artists. And if you remember when the internet came around, the idea was that it could actually break down barriers, right? It could break down barriers to gatekeepers. Most artists, artisans typically had these agents or gatekeepers that they had to use to get out their work. we built one of the first sites on the internet called Arts Online. You can't see much. I had to go back to the Wayback Machine. It actually says 1995. <laughs> but, uh, I, but, but we actually put up 5,000 artists online. Some of them actually did some amount of where people found them and they were actually able to close some sales. But we were way too early. I ended up writing this book called Arts on the Internet. And if you can read carefully, Glenn Urban, who was the dean of the Sloan School at the time, actually gave the cover quote because Glenn was also an artist. But what Dave and I talked about was the interesting opportunity we saw was a couple of years ago, I said, could we not use uh, the same arts concept, but for enabling handicrafts in small villages to sell their handicrafts? So think about the scenario. You go off to Peru or India into a small village. Anyone been to any of these small villages overseas? Okay, if you go there, you find uh, in some of them, you find these very, very adept uh, craftsmen. And you may buy something, then you come back to the United States and you want to buy it again there, and how do you do that, right? Because it's very difficult because that individual on that uh, singular handicraft person may have internet access, they may not have internet access. And in fact, um, I was tweeting about Postal Vision, and I was talking about what I'm going to talk about today, and someone in a rural Indian village who has internet access just wrote to me, in fact, about an hour before I got on stage here, and said that, you know, in the rural villages, people only trust the Postal Service, even though there's a digital age. So what our interest was, was how do we enable these handicraft makers to sell their wares? You know, how do you create that supply chain, some of which exists, and how do you enable um, buyers, you know, from here, let's say, to buy that? So that's sort of the question we asked. And so that led to um, us really defining, we call this international small business commerce, and I think this click, this, this ain't working, but I think you can say it. But we, first of all, what is small business? For the sake of the report, we actually identified it as f- a business with 500 employees or less. 
Um, in that definition, it's hard to find exactly how many small businesses there are glo globally. Some said 70, 80 million, but it's about 100 million. You can put you know, roughly about a, up to 100 million globally. In the U.S. alone, there's about 28 million. And most of this growth now is being fueled by the Internet. Um, you've seen a number of statistics, but the big takeaway from this chart is that uh, it's about a $279 dollar, a billion dollar business by 2015, but you can see it's still less than 8% of, you know, offline retail, right? So still huge opportunities for growth in e-commerce, but that's the major takeaway from that slide. The other interesting uh, piece within this is that obviously when we first started, the people said, well, does, doesn't Amazon and eBay do this? In fact, we had someone from eBay actually at the workshops. Amazon and eBay do provide significant amount of infrastructure for these platforms. Um, there's also new, you know, for example, you could even start your own blog and get plugins from WordPress. So those kinds of things are actually making it more easy for ordinary people, ordinary businesses to do e-commerce. Um, and there's also industry-specific platforms if you look for particular industries. But the, the interesting problem we wanted to address and the opportunity was this growth. There's about, it's estimated over the next five years, we're gonna have about $1.5 trillion worth of e-commerce. And if you look at it, most of it um, even though it's going to come from the U.S. and U.K., but the, the highest growth will be from Spain, Brazil, China, Russia, India, Mexico, and U.K., and Italy. So that's where a lot of those um, small businesses in those developing nations are going to want to also do e-commerce. Now, there's two types of e-commerce. E-commerce within those countries, right? So in, uh, someone in India wanting to buy from someone in India or someone in the U.S., but the other piece is cross-border e-commerce. And, uh, and so it took us a while to figure out what that number would be because the statistics are all over. So we did some interpolation and extrapolation. I'll, I'll share that with you. But uh, there's three types of connectivity we sort of looked in this report. One is you know, where people actually have web access. If you go to many of these developing nations, people have access to the web. Um, Anil Ambani, who, heads, who's a, uh, who owns Reliance, which is one of the big telcos, he estimates in, by, in two years there will be 300 to 400 mi million people potentially on the internet in India alone, but primarily they'll leapfrog to smartphones. So you have this huge um, number of people coming on, uh, on the internet from that, separate from cell phones, which, which most people have. But the other part is most of these um, small businesses, st still their interaction is with the Postal Service. So the other emerging piece that we can't, can't forget is um, social commerce. You know, we, I have a house in India. Uh, the security guard in India who's a young kid, he actually has 300 Facebook friends, okay? So you have a young kid who comes from a very poor rural village who works in the city, and he's also developed, you know, Facebook friends. But when you look at this phenomenon of social commerce, it's gone through three phases. We went through the era of social relationships, right, where we're just sort of building friends on... on um, on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. Then we went to the era of social functionality, then into social colonization and social context and social commerce. And, and what that looks like is on the top, you see essentially where we're essentially just establishing relationships. Then we started building apps and widgets, which is really social functionality. And then we went to sort of colonizing the web where we started using IDs and started you know, understanding who people were. And then we started doing context more context-based stuff with websites, and now we're in this area of social commerce. And that business also cannot be underestimated where people are essentially using Facebook and Twitter essentially to drive business. In fact, Pinterest is one of the best ways to drive um, uh, business commerce. And it turns out the typical way that people buy, decide to buy someone from trust, it's nearly 
uh, 80% is because someone else recommends it. So social commerce is going to be a, a very important vehicle for trusted communications, for trusted vendors, and that actually, or trusted commerce. Um, and if you look at this, all, you know, investors have put a ton of money into social commerce. All of these kinds of vendors have come up at all different strata from, you know, uh, supporting uh, application systems, et cetera. So when we looked at this, uh, we started also noticing some trends and peculiarities in international small business commerce. One of them is 20% of the commerce from our analysis will be cross-border. Okay, so that means someone from the U.S., trading with someone in India, right? Not just US-based e-commerce. So that, we thought, was an interesting result of our work. Um, the other piece was that itself will reach $280 billion in 2017. So that's a huge amount of e-commerce just in cross-border e-commerce. Now that's in addition to the chart that I showed you. So the numbers are pretty close, that's just very coincidental. So that's in addition to that $279 billion. The other two pieces, the, the peculiarities are that it's limited today because most of the commerce typically takes place cross-border, cross-developed nations. So US, Canada, right? US, UK, Australia deals with, but it's very little still taking place across these developed nations. And one of the things that the assumption is because it's mainly English. So when we did this workshop, we actually started looking at um, what the gaps actually were, right? Where could the Postal Service actually participate? And some of them, I think people have talked about, some of them may be repetitive, but I want to go through this in a little bit of detail, and then we'll, uh, I'll share with you the three that we rated that we thought the Postal Service could actually participate in um, because of its existing infrastructure and what it has. But these were the, the major gaps, one being there's a lack of assurance in delivery time. So put yourself um, in this mindset. Let's say you're on an uh, Indian handicraft website. You, you, know, you and your wife or your, or your family visited some small village. You saw this guy selling some great goods. Now you're back in your um, suburban home in the United States, and you're on the internet, and you want to buy something, right? What's going to stop you from buying from that person, even though you may have seen them, right? So that's sort of the scenario you want to put yourself into. So, um, you know, one of the things is, you know, is this thing going to be delivered? That's the, the lack of assurance. Custom delays. You know, I bought something in India about six years ago. I still haven't been able to bring it here because every time... Uh, friends of mine take it to the customs. You have to pay off someone. You have to go through this nonsense with the uh, customs people. Uh, it's a significant overhead. There's also inconsistencies in resolving currency exchanges, right? So if you're going to put your credit card in, how do you know the currency is going to be resolved properly? Um, there's potential fraud and security issues. Um, reliability of the buyer, right? So remember, the seller in, 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 the, in the developing nation also wants to know, is he going to get paid? And you as a buyer also want to know, uh, is this person legitimate? Poor quality of assurances. There's an inability for handling international returns. And this is something we, we thought was a very big opportunity for Postal Service. And there's others. And I'll, I'll just share, I'll sort of, um, there's about 30 others we identified. But just to summarize, uh, once one group fit into what would um, be the question someone would go into, that would actually inhibit them from purchasing. One is, you know, what is included in the cost? So if you're seeing a cost and you're about to check out um, of that, you know, shopping cart, um, what's the cost of the unit? You know, are taxes, duties, is everything included? Or are you going to be hit up for charges when you, you know, when you actually go to pick up the thing? Uh, what's the currency the buyer should pay in when purchasing? How are the currency exchanges rates being determined? 
Um, you know, what are the rules and laws entering into the transaction of the foreign country? And who assumes liability, right? It's a bit, very big issue if there's a failed transaction. And the other big one is can I legally buy and sell the product, right? There are certain products you obviously cannot buy in the United States, but the, the, the country may have specific laws which let you sell it, but you can't bring them here. There are cultural issues, you know? You know, is, is the language only English? Um, customer service, as we know, is extremely important to supporting commerce. You know, there's this book that was written called A Complaint as a Gift. Obviously, someone's complaining, and you can't speak the proper language. You're probably going to lose the opportunity to convert them properly. Um, some people do prefer face-to-face -face communication. So how do you resolve that? People are used to typically buying face-to-face. -face. And there's, then there's a presentation of the product. Some, um, uh, you know, we, in the United States, we spend a tremendous amount of effort in branding, right? Everything's got to look great. Um, the... The, the developing nation seller may not have potentially or may have different aesthetics to what is appreciated here. So that could essentially mitigate some of their opportunities to sell. So how do you help them with that? And then there's also cultural norms, you know, certain images you should not be using if you're trying to sell overseas, et cetera. So there's a number of cultural issues. And then the other piece we talked about was trust, 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 meaning that the authenticity of the seller, um, the security of the buyer's purchase information, if I'm buying something, you're, you know, before you hit submit, you're probably going to wonder, is, is the seller going to keep this secure? Um, customs, we talked about. Seller's assurance, will they be paid? The sellers want to know, am I going to actually be paid? And the other piece is, again, it comes back to, can I return? And if so, how do I return the product? Okay? So, so then we, so based on these gaps, you know, we did a, a, a pretty good working session. We tried to identify where could the USPS actually uh, play, very tactically, and this was really based on what are the um, functional service capabilities the Postal Service is really good in and where, could, um, and where could it actually support international small business commerce. And in this, we actually sort of just listed them. So I want to just share that with you uh, very quickly. And obviously, um, it's, it's open for discussion. After this, we, as I said, we itemize sort of the top three, uh, which, which the Postal Service could likely look at. Uh, you know, if they wanted to do further experimentation. But first one was seller reputation score management, very much like um, a service offering, a widget that you could offer on the web, very much like how TripAdvisor, you know, these kinds of online sites do where they actually uh, can, can give a reputation score for the seller. So if you're buying from different sellers in developing nations, could the Postal Service help um, uh, give a reputation score? The other one is international package movement coordination service. The Postal Service could set up you know, an international facility to establish a presence in foreign countries. Some countries actually allow this, others don't. There's some legal issues around that. Micro-warehousing service. In, um, like in India and in many developing nations, the biggest area of growth right now is logistics. It's a huge booming business right now. If you own land in many developing nations, most of the people who are buying it right now are warehousing companies. So there's an opportunity for micro-warehousing, and it's something that would have to be done, particularly in rural areas where people could bring it. You could do the quality assurance and checking. Promotional and shipping material distribution. As I said earlier, that tweet that was sent to me, um, many of these, if you go at the, at the lowest level of these uh, handicraft suppliers, many of them may have a smartphone, but they still need the ability, if they're going to publish something, how do they actually build their own catalogs and promote it, right? Today, the, the Postal Service actually has some direct marketing service that they do. So there's an opportunity where the Postal Service could be the front end to provide some of those marketing and promotional services. Obviously, being a customs clearance service, 
Um, the, the branding of the uh, Postal Service, the trust it has, and in fact, some of the, uh, the, the back end it has could, could help if I'm a U.S. citizen buying something in another country to use that force to make sure it goes through customs easier and I don't have to get involved in these um, deals with these agents which demand other types of fees that you pay them, illicit or otherwise. Um, then there's international COD service, expanding you know, the cash and delivery service. Again, this is a service the Postal Service already has, essentially um, supporting that. And then there's regulatory compliance management service, and this could include you know, selling, sending alerts or notifications of buyers and uh, sellers and helping them actually verify you know, the product as legal trade, essentially giving inf additional information on the viability of, of executing that sale. Um, obviously, the Postal Service has customer service. There's adjuncts that we talked about could be added to that, which could be supporting language support in specific communities, and then also enhanced insurance coverage. There, the Postal Service provides a certain amount of insurance coverage, and that can be enhanced to provide more options to the buyer and the seller. And then finally, we ended with a couple of others. We talked about single-click shipping service. And this would be where enhancing the user experience of mailing and shipping by providing one-click ship. So this could be essentially, again, a, a widget that the Postal Service could offer using a lot of the data that it has on the back end. And, and that service could store you know, the sender's information, including his or her address, maintain an address book for the sender, and enable the sender to mail or ship items with ease. Again, leveraging the data that's already there, but presenting it through the um, digital medium in an easier way. And then trading partner authentication database. The Postal Service is actually poised to help build a database so as buyers and sellers come, again, if it's presented by the Postal Service, the idea would be that would support trust. And then we talked about a couple of others, um, you know, shipment track and trace systems, enhanced re product return service, which are self-explanatory. And then also one of the key things that would really help uh, commerce and, and this was one of the ones that was selected, and I'll come back to that, is a, a calculator for fully uh, landed costs. This is something that really can help enable commerce because, again, it, it gets back to addressing that gap. Um, is this price I'm going to pay uh, be the fully landed cost? And that would take into account the seller's location, buyer's location, the type of product, et cetera. And then finally, we talked about um, simplified shipping options at reasonable prices. The Postal Service has actually built some very simple ways, if you're a, uh, uh, a provider, a seller, how you package things so you can make it very easy to ship. If you have to do multiple different kinds of packaging, that essentially makes the entire commerce person uh, process difficult because the pricing becomes difficult on the shipping line. Everyone follow what I'm saying? So if, if you have multiple different physical sizes of packages, it makes it much more difficult to process. So out of this, the net of it was, as we went through, there's about 15 there, um, these were the three that we decided if we were to go to the Postal Service and say, hey, these are potentially good ones. The first one was, you know, simplified shipping at reasonable prices. And the hypothesis here was why this was selected was the Postal Service could enable accelerated, you know, more trusted international small business commerce by providing simplified shipping at reasonable prices, e.g., you know, flat rate per package and volume discounts. So essentially, you, you come up with a, a product uh, for those international sellers. The second one was a fully loaded um, you know, cost or fully landed cost calculator for shipping at reasonable prices, which I just explained. And the third one was authentication of trading partners. So just to review, the first one was this one, you know, simplified shipping. The second one was um, you know, a cost calculator. This would be up on the web. And by the way, if the Postal Service developed this, it would be something 
that could be used on many other sites, not just on, you know, it, essentially a, a plugin that could be dropped in. And then the third one was authentication of trading partners. So in the interest of time, the net of our summary was, it's, you know, if you look at the cross-border market, it's about a $250, $280 billion market. And our view is there's, an, uh, there's a number of opportunities. Some of them may seem very tactical. They're not really that sexy. But the Postal Service could take advantage of those to generate new revenue. That's it. Thank you, Shiva. Yep. We're, uh, that was terrific. And uh, uh, we, I do see one question from uh, Dr. Del Polito, and we'll allow just one because of who he is. He's, he's a, <laughs> and then we have to break. I and a couple of other people in the room have served on the board of directors of something called the International Mailers Advisory Group. I have several questions I'd like to ask you. First of all, has the paper been presented to the Postal Service yet? Uh, it's been given to uh, the OIG. I don't know if it has been presented to the Postal Service yet. Okay. I can't tell you. This is the most exciting stuff I've heard about international in my many years of being involved with the international arena. And you've given them a boatload of ideas. I wish you the best of luck in the world trying to convince them to get off their duffs to do any of it. But you clearly have pointed a way and you have identified needs that most definitely need to be addressed by them. And if you go to the Postal Service and you find out that the Postal Service does their usual dance and they give the shuck and jive or try to push it to the side, go to the Commerce Department and explain to the Commerce Department how they have an agency in their own entity, the government, that can help facilitate the interaction of uh, international commerce. This was a very, very well done study. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, Gene. And thank you for waking us all up for our break. <laughs> As well, ex expected. But you respond to that. Uh, yeah, so what, what we, Gene, by the way, thank you. Much appreciated. One, one of the things we did was when we presented this to the Postal Service, because being an entrepreneur, it's not just about writing reports. You know, when, when we engaged the OIG, I said, look, I don't just want to write reports. I actually want to help do something, right? So when we, at the ending of the last report on this one, we, we ended up proposing actually little mini research prototypes. You know, there's some legalities on whether you can actually go build a product, but we said, why don't you do this? This is how you do it. Here's a method, and here's a ways to measure it. So, so okay. we, yeah. When you tell me that you went, you talked to the OIG, what you need to understand is they are a separate, rational yeah. animal inside this thing we call the Postal Service. I want to see you work the same miracle by going to the actual people who are responsible for running the international coastal arena and getting them to even understand whatever the hell it is you're talking about. Okay, he didn't need a mic right. for that. We'll do. Uh, he didn't need a mic for that, and I'm going to interrupt because I am thrilled you, to tell you that after the break, uh, which we'll have to uh, limit to 10 minutes because...